Our partner today is Home Biogas. The Home Biogas system is a backyard appliance that turns your food scraps into renewable gas for cooking. The process is a lot like composting, but with Home Biogas, you capture the methane released in the composting process and put it to use in your kitchen. You can stop relying on fossil fuels for cooking and turn to a natural and sustainable source. For every two pounds of food you put in, you'll get an hour of cooking gas. It's easy to use. All you have to do is put your food scraps into the appliance, and bacteria will break down your food into biogas that flows right into your kitchen. If you want to create a sustainable circular economy in your backyard, get started now at homebiogas.com. Use coupon code PERMACULTURE18 at checkout to receive a $50 discount on your purchase. That code is PERMACULTURE18 to get $50 off. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. My guest today is Victoria Redhead Miller, who joins me for the second part of our conversation on craft distilling, this time to talk about the art of the process, which turns fermented sugars, whether from grains, fruit, molasses, or honey, into tasty, tasty liquor. Along the way, she tells us about the process of distilling, including watching for our heads, hearts, and tails, the poisonous compounds found and concentrated in distilled liquor that we need to look out for, equipment every distiller should own to keep them and their final products safe, and why we should think twice about making sugar shine. Stick around until I join you again after the interview for additional resources, a correction on something I say during the conversation, and how you can enter drawings to win a copy of Victoria's books, Craft Distilling, which she will sign for you, and her latest on baking bread, From No Need to Sourdough. We begin with Victoria taking us through the distilling process. Anybody who has made beer is pretty familiar with the first part of the process, which is mashing your grain. And the grain is usually, but not always, it's usually barley. It's usually malted barley. And the first part is mashing the grain, which is basically soaking the grain in water at a certain temperature for a given amount of time. And that process there's an enzyme reaction that happens during that process that converts the starch in the grain to fermentable sugars. And those sugars are then dissolved in the water that the grain is soaking in. That liquid is drained off, yeast is added to it, and the next step is the fermentation. During fermentation, essentially what happens is the yeast consumes the sugar in that liquid and produces as a result both alcohol and carbon dioxide. However much sugar there is in that liquid has a direct bearing on how much alcohol is potentially produced by the yeast. And then that liquid, once it's fermented and it's got a certain percentage of alcohol in it now, that then goes into the boiling pot of your still where it's heated and uh, the various compounds, including the ethyl alcohol or ethanol, those things, they're all vaporized in the heating process. And then that vapor comes in contact with a condenser that cools down that vapor and condenses it back into a liquid form. And basically the whole rest of the process is separating out the drinkable part of that, which is mainly ethanol, from all the other compounds in that vapor. So that's pretty much it in a nutshell. So, you know, the first part all the way up through fermentation is what beer brewers and winemakers, for that matter, will be familiar with. All the winemakers aren't mashing grain, of course. And then the rest of it is really just putting that liquid in the still and distilling it. And then through that process, my recollection is that alcohol boils at a lower temperature than the water. So are you trying to hold the temperature below the boiling point of water so that you just capture that alcohol? 
or are you just letting it rip and getting the vapor off whatever you can? Okay, that's a really excellent question. And there's a couple things that are really important to know. A lot of people think distilling is a chemical process, but it's actually a physical process. And the physical process involved, as you mentioned, ethanol has a different boiling point than water. Ethanol vaporizes at approximately 173 degrees Fahrenheit. Water vaporizes or boils at sea level, boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit. So what we're doing, the physical process of distilling, there's a lot of different compounds in that liquid. That's called the wash. That's the liquid that you have after you've fermented it and it's ready to distill. In that wash, there's a lot of different compounds. There's water, there's ethanol, there's methanol, there's acetone, there's what's called higher order alcohols. There's a lot of different compounds. The physical process of distilling involves separating those compounds from each other. And the way that that works, the reason why it works is because all of those compounds have different boiling points. Some of them have lower boiling points than alcohol and some of them have higher boiling points than ethanol. And so the question is, that's the real skill to my mind involved in distilling is accurately separating one thing from another. Things like methanol and acetone, they can definitely be dangerous to you in quantity. Those things both have lower boiling points than ethanol, which means they come out of the still before the ethanol does. And so, you know, methanol, for example, in quantity, methanol will actually destroy the optic nerve, which is where all those stories about people going blind from bad moonshine came from. A lot of people think that's a total myth, but it's not. But anyway, you know, the, the, real, the real issue with distilling is separating out these compounds from each other. And as I said, the, way that, the reason why it works is because they all have different boiling points. So you heat up the liquid in the still, and it's really important to know that there's a difference between the vaporization point of those compounds and the boiling point. Because, for example, if you put a tea kettle on your stove to heat up, there will be steam coming out the spout on that tea kettle before it actually comes to a boil. So what that means is that water is starting to vaporize before it gets to the boiling point, and that's also true of the other compounds in that wash. So it's not just a matter of heating up that liquid until it boils. What happens is once the things that have the lowest vaporization point, like methanol, once those things start to vaporize, steam starts to rise through the column of that still, and eventually comes in contact with cold water in the condenser and condenses back into liquid form and then comes out another part of the still to be collected. What is this like then as you're getting these compounds off to get exactly what it is that you're looking for? You just went to the heart of the matter here. That's the whole crux of the distilling process is how to get what you want out of there and separate it from the stuff that you don't want. Because there are things in there, there are compounds in there, as I said, methanol, acetone, and some other ones that are actually poisonous or can hurt you some way. There's other things that aren't necessarily poisonous, but they add bad tasting elements to your liquor and you want to separate them as well. So the question is, how do we know when stuff starts dripping out of that still? You know, how do we know what's coming out at any given time? There's a couple of different ways to do that, but I'll just go right to the one that I use because I, to me it is, and I've tried several different methods, but to me, on, especially on a small scale like this, it's the easiest to do and definitely most accurate, and both of those add up to it works for me. The first thing that comes out of the still is going to be the highest in alcohol content. The first thing coming out of the still is actually about 95% alcohol. 
And here's, by the way, where some of the fire and explosion hazard comes in. That's almost as volatile as gasoline. That's one of those safety issues that the Liquor Control Board likes to talk about that make it different from beer and wine. As the distilling process continues, what's coming out of the still, the alcohol content of that liquid, it's going to drop steadily as you go through the whole process. All of the liquid that eventually comes out of the still, before you turn off that still, it's all divided into three different phases that are called heads, hearts, and tails. The heads and the tails are the parts that you want to separate. The hearts in the middle of that run, that is the ethyl alcohol or ethanol, and that's what you want to keep. So how do we know what part is the heads and when we've gotten into hearts? Well, you watch the alcohol content of the liquid coming out of the still, and this is kind of a good, a really good general rule. There's a few exceptions to this, but in general, most things that I have ever distilled, the heads continue from the very beginning of what's coming out of the still. I have a separate container that's marked heads. I want, you know, we want to make sure that's really clearly labeled because that stuff is poisonous and we don't want it anywhere near what we're drinking. So what I do is I've got a little tool called an alcohol refractometer and it's just a little handheld tool nothing electronic about it or anything. It's real simple. It's got an eyepiece at one end, and at the other end, there's a little glass panel with a plastic cover that flips down over it. What you do is you just stick that, you know, flip up that plastic cover on the end and put that end with the glass, the little glass slide on it very briefly underneath the dripping coming out of your still just to catch a drop or two of that liquid on that, that screen and you flip that little plastic cover down over that, and it kind of spreads that liquid out over the glass panel. You then put that up to your eye, the eyepiece end up to your eye, and look toward a source of light. And you can easily see, it's really clear and easy to, to read, a scale there that says how much, what the alcohol content of that liquid is. And so what I do is, once the liquid starts coming out of that spill, I start every couple of minutes or so, testing a drop of liquid and seeing what the alcohol content is. Good rule of thumb that I use is everything above 80% alcohol is heads. So in other words, I collect in my container marked heads, I continue to collect that liquid until I see that the alcohol content of what's coming out of the still is getting close to about 80%. And I should say that one of the reasons why I think it's so much easier to use the refractometer to do this is because on this scale, when we're talking these small-ish quantities of liquid, the transition between heads and hearts and the transition between hearts and tails comes really quickly. It's very easy to miss, and I just feel that it's so much easier and much more accurate to use the refractometer and just completely go by what the alcohol content of that liquid is. And so as soon as I see that it's just about down to 80%, I switch containers and I put a container marked hearts under that flow. So everything above 80% heads. Generally, again, a few exceptions, but in general, everything between about 80% and 65% is hearts. And everything after that point is going to be tails. So the hearts are, and again, tails are collected in a separate container. The heart, that's the ethyl alcohol or ethanol. That's the stuff you want to keep. And it's going to become, once it's diluted to drinking strength, that will become your finished liquor. So 
that's kind of a brief rundown of that process, but that's really pretty much what it is. There are a few exceptions, some things like brandy. The heads go down into maybe about to 75% instead of 80 before you collecting hearts, but there's really very few exceptions. In general, everything above 80 is heads, 80 to 65 is hearts, and less than 65 is tails. And that also gives me a better understanding then that the products that we tend to buy from a liquor store have been diluted then to reach that standard percentage of alcohol, that 40% or 80 proof as it's normally labeled in the United States for things like most of our whiskeys and things. Right, because for the most part, most, and I've kept detailed records of every single batch I have ever distilled, and I'm really glad I have because that, among other things, that let me see that that I've gotten better at distilling as I've gone along and my yields have actually improved because I got better at the separation of heads and hearts and hearts and tails. But yeah, you're right, you know, about the dilution because in general, most things that I've ever distilled, when all is said and done and I'm finished distilling that batch, what I have is usually somewhere between 65 and sometimes up to 75% alcohol. That's actually really dangerous to drink at that concentration. And, and frankly, I don't think it remotely tastes good anyway. Um, and so, yeah, most kinds of alcohol are diluted to somewhere between 40 and 45%. There's a few things like some kinds of liqueurs that are, that are diluted more than that to 30-something percent. But in general, most things like, you know, vodka or rum or, or whiskey, you know, are generally diluted to somewhere between 40 and 45%. When you're running your still and you've separated out the head and you've gotten your hearts and then you're just discarding the tails, how much alcohol are you, are you usually producing off of a batch? And like, how large is the starting batch that you begin with? Okay. Yeah. And that's a really good question. That's a, um, I get asked that quite a lot. Yeah. So the boiling pot on my still holds a total of about seven and a half gallons. It's never filled anywhere near full. They usually, you know, say, tell you the usual recommendations are not to fill it more than two-thirds to three-quarters full, and that's because there's a danger of boil over, which can be really dangerous when you have something boiling over that has alcohol in it. And since we are off the grid and I have no electricity in, we have electricity at the house now, we have solar electric there, but I've got no electricity in my still house, and my still runs on a propane burner. I don't want anything boiling over onto that, so I never fill it more than about two-thirds full. So two-thirds full is about five gallons then that you would load into your still each time? I kind of go on the safe side with mine. I usually, I don't usually don't put more than 15 liters in there, which is a little under four gallons. But generally a batch that size, um, I am starting with about 15 pounds of grain. That's how much grain I'm mashing. And I end up with about, start out with about five or six gallons of water that the grain's mashing in, but of course the grain soaks up a fair amount of that water. And so by the time I drain that liquid off into the fermenting bucket, I have something usually between four and five gallons of liquid. And then once that's all fermented, that's usually just the right amount to put about 15 liters or so into my boiling pot. So when all is said and done, and I've taken that 15 pounds of grain, I've mashed it, I've fermented it, I've distilled it, I and, and then diluted it to drinking strength, typically I end up with somewhere around a liter and a half of drinkable alcohol from that. I know it's not very much. By the way, this is something I should have mentioned before, too, that 
a lot of people think that you're actually creating alcohol during the distilling process, but the where the alcohol is being created is during the fermentation process. The distilling process actually just concentrates down the alcohol that's already there by removing a lot of the water and other compounds from that. And so, so yeah, you're just really concentrating it down. And so this is why I said before that I've got numbers on my side here to, you know, to prove to the authorities that, you know, not everybody is going to want to go out and make their own liquor. It's time consuming. Yes, you can make really good liquor at home, but it's time consuming. And it's frankly not on this scale. My records show quite clearly that it's quite often not cost-effective to make your own. It's very different from beer that way. I've made enough beer and wine to know that you can definitely save money making your own beer and wine, but it's not necessarily true of liquor. And I think from talking to an awful lot of people over the last several years about this, that that's saving money or thinking they're going to save money is often the primary motivation for people wanting to do their own distilling. And it depends a little on where you live. Like, you know, if I lived in Kentucky or Illinois or somewhere where they grow a lot of corn, it might be cost effective for me to make my own bourbon, but it's not where I live. And I learned to make tequila in the course of researching my book. And I made some really darn good tequila, but I don't live anywhere near where blue agave grows. <laughs> and so I was making it from blue agave syrup, but it was probably more money than you know, what I would have paid for a bottle of darn good tequila at the store. So there's that part of it to take into consideration too. But yeah, that's a really common question is how much liquor am I going to get out of a given amount of grain or how much is it going to cost me to make, you know, to make a bottle of whiskey or rum or whatever it is. And there's so many variables in that, including your skill as a distiller, that it's impossible to give one accurate answer for that. But I've done enough of it to be able to at least ballpark it. And that gives a pretty good idea. I mean, when I was brewing beer before, I was able to make, you know, two and a half cases of beer for 20 or $25 using a kit from my local brew supply shop. And for my friends who were brewing from grain, they said, you know, once you go to, to all grain, you can have that price or go even lower depending on what's in season and what's readily available or, you know, who you know and what they're getting in that your price for producing beer is pretty low. Wine per bottle can get down to a dollar or less, depending on what you're buying in. But it does sound like this is a lot more of a process. And two questions that I have about process. You mentioned the alcohol refractometer. Using that just gives you a good level of safety when it comes to ensuring that you're getting the good stuff. Right. And it also just, you know, besides the safety issue, I think you just really end up with better finished alcohol because it is it makes it so much easier to separate out not just the poisonous or dangerous things, but the things that that definitely can can detract from the flavor or add in, you know, some bitterness or some other sort of flavor component that you really don't want. But to my mind, the main advantage is it just makes it so much easier to understand what it is coming out of the still because you know, when I, I looked at a number of different and actually spent money on even a number of different little mostly self-published little books aimed at, at hobby distillers when I was researching craft distilling. And they mostly say they give you a, a certain size of batch and it'll say you have a gallon of liquid as opposed to the 15 liters that I usually distill. You start with a gallon of liquid and, and what they'll say is, well, when the liquid starts coming out of the still, just discard the first tablespoon that comes out of the still. And then 
everything else after that is okay. And I think that is, first of all, it's wasteful. Depending on what you're distilling, you know, with a batch that little, the heads might be less than a tablespoon. But I also, I think that's really bad advice because depending on what you're distilling and how good a job you did with your mashing and fermentation, you know, you might still, if you just discarded a tablespoon off that, you might still have a considerable amount of methanol mixed in with your heart. And if that was the only method available, you know, I guess you could do that. But, you know, it's so much easier with an alcohol refractometer, to my mind. And it's not a real expensive tool. I got one that wasn't the cheapest. It wasn't the most expensive. I got it from an eBay seller for about 35 bucks. To me, that was a really, really good investment. And like I said, on this scale, those transitions, you have to really watch, even after all my experience with this, I have to really watch carefully to catch that transition between, you know, when it's just getting down to about 80% alcohol. And that's really kind of the most important transition as far as I'm concerned, because everything above that ethanol, everything between 80 and 95%, most of that stuff is actually poisonous and can be dangerous. And you really want to separate that out as accurately as you can. So I obviously feel pretty strongly about that. I just think that you should, when you're talking about something that could have health consequences and there's fire danger and everything, I think you should just give yourself every possible advantage in doing it easily and accurately. And for that price and with the equipment that's available, there's no reason to try to eyeball this or go through any of the other folk methods that can put you in danger. I don't know anybody who drank moonshine who went blind from it, but I heard plenty of stories from some of my uncles and others that, you know, those anecdotes were out there. And then I remember looking into it and the amount of methanol that you need to consume for it to destroy your optic nerve is frighteningly small. I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, I was thinking about it a while back when somebody asked me, I think it was after the first Mother Earth News Fair this year that was in Texas in February. And somebody asked me that question. And, you know, all I knew at the time was that in a certain quantity, methanol can actually destroy the optic nerve. But so do you know exactly what that quantity is or just that it's a really small amount? I don't remember off the top of my head, but I'll try to find that figure because I don't remember if it was in parts per million or a certain number of milliliters, and I don't want to misquote it. I should mention here, since we're talking about the methanol, go back to that Applejack that you were talking about for a minute, because this I get asked about a lot, too, and it's a really important point, I think. When it comes to that Applejack, I don't know if that was something that I mentioned that will be part of the interview, but but it was something we were talking about as we led into this. But yeah, if you want to go ahead. Right. And I I just want to point out that because, you know, people have asked me about that and, you know, they live in a northern state where it gets quite cold or something and they want to try that. And the really important point about that is just that and the way that that works, of course, is you put that out on your back porch or something and you let it freeze overnight. And what freezes is the water in there and you take that ice off of there and you put it out again the next night and take off some more ice and it just eventually gets concentrated down. The really important point about that is all you are taking out of there is water. The methanol and the acetone and all those other nasty things are still in there. But that's the really important point about that, that that's what makes it different from the kind of distilling that we're talking about using an actual still where you're you're bringing things to a vaporization point and then condensing them and separating them. So, you know, I'm pretty sure that that would be the, the whole reason behind all the, the stories about people drinking too much freeze distilled alcohol and at the very least having the worst headache of their life. And that goes back to what you were saying earlier, that distilling is a physical, not a chemical process. And I'm glad that you said that because it was one of the things that I was thinking about was that some of those compounds were created during the boiling and distilling, but they're not. They're already in there. 
yeah, all those things are created during the fermentation process, which is a biochemical process. As opposed to the distilling, which is a physical process. It is a physical process. That's correct. So really, all you're doing in the distilling process is you're taking out things other than alcohol and just kind of concentrating the liquid down to where it's a higher concentration of alcohol. But I tell you, you know, I wrote about this in in my book that when I first started reading about this, I thought I was never, ever, ever going to understand it. It just seemed impossibly complicated. I don't have a chemistry background or physics or any of these other things, and I didn't have anybody to kind of look over my shoulder or use as a mentor, which I highly recommend if you can find one when you're learning this kind of thing. It would have been really helpful, and it took me four times as long to learn this than it might have otherwise, but eventually I kept at it, and eventually I did get it, and, you know, I just mentioned that because it does seem really overwhelming at first, but part of it was I just kept at it, and I kept good records as I went along. That was a really important learning tool for me. It might not be for everybody. Everybody has a different learning style, but that's what worked for me. And, you know, it was just at a certain point, of course, I felt like I'd invested enough time and effort into it that I just really wanted to keep going, even if it seemed really difficult. But, yeah, it took me a long time to to learn as much as I know now. And I I promise I'm still learning. There's still, I probably will continue to learn for as long as I'm interested in distilling. To me, what's part of what's fascinating about it is... There's all the science part of it that we've talked quite a bit about, but there's also the part that I kind of consider the art and craft of distilling, which is at just about any point in the entire process from the mashing on up to the distilling and aging and diluting and filtering and all those things, at just about any point in the process, there's any number of places where you can tweak a little detail here or there and really influence the, the end product that you get. And I always tell people, and this is perfectly true, that the still that you use at home works on exactly the same principle as all those big, fancy, expensive, beautiful copper commercial stills. And we're not making kind of baby booze here. You can totally make something really, really good and completely unique that's all your own, that nobody else will ever duplicate. And that, to me, is just... That's the kind of thing that really gets me going with stuff like this. The idea that that you could just, you at home as a hobbyist, could make something as good or better than what's available commercially. I just think that's pretty fascinating. Anybody who's ever made beer certainly knows that you can definitely make really top quality beer at home. And really, honestly, if you're making whiskey, you're basically making beer and distilling it. (laughs) You know, that's pretty much what it comes down to. About the only thing different in that process is usually with whiskey, you're not adding hops somewhere in the process, but otherwise, it's exactly the same. So it's very easy. To my mind, It's once you have the equipment, it's very easy to make the transition from making beer to making whiskey. It's just kind of the next step in the evolution of learning about home alcohol creation. Right. Yeah, that's how I view it. And that's, like I said, a lot of people that I talk to that's, and I usually ask at the presentations how many people make beer at home or have made beer at home, and an awful lot of hands go up every time. And so, you know, it just seems like I think a lot of people come to it the same way that I did. This is just, you know, the next thing to learn. It's the next challenge. It's kind of the next step beyond beer. A lot of people just will stay with beer, and that's completely fine. But I, I have to admit, I just got... I got completely bitten by the bug with the distilling. And as I said, I don't have a scientific background. And so it took me longer probably than a lot of people to get to the point of really understanding it. 
and also kind of losing my fear of it. You know, there's an awful lot about the safety issues and things that can sound pretty scary, you know, but I think the main thing was I wasn't in a big rush and I didn't put any pressure on myself about it and just really took my time doing it. And, and you know what, the very first thing that I ever distilled, which was actually dark rum, and I'd like to joke this isn't actually true, but um, <laughs> I like to joke that I made dark rum first because it's my husband's favorite and I'm such a good wife. I made his favorite before I made mine, which is Irish whiskey. But actually, that was the first thing that I made because it was easier. It didn't involve mash and grain. You know, all I had to do was, we have a friend who runs a really wonderful restaurant in our area and he, he gets this organic blackstrap molasses for me in, in these big buckets, like 50-pound 50, 50 buckets at wholesale price. And you just dissolve the molasses in hot water and let it cool down to a temperature that won't kill your yeast, add your yeast to it, ferment it, and then distill it. It's really simple. And that very first, I'm not kidding, the very first bottle that I made was really quite delicious. If I can do it, really anybody can do it. It's, it's, it's perfectly possible. It does. It definitely seems overwhelming at first. There's an awful lot of detail to it. But once I kind of had a, you know, what I think of as my light bulb moment about it, where things felt like they sort of fell into place and finally made a little sense, you know, then it's been mostly a matter of just a lot of practice and keeping good records, as I said. And that was one of the things for me when I was making beer and wine previously. Keeping those kinds of records were very, very important to know. I never went to whole grain, but knowing what kit I bought, what my final alcohol content was and things like that, how the flavor was, how it aged, gave me a lot of insight into what I would do the next time when I went back to it, getting suggestions from friends you know, on what yeast works better with a particular variety and things like that really improved the process. I did have one question as you've been working through this and getting better at running your still. If you're going to distill something, even though it's been a while, is going out to your distilling shed an all-day process or is it a couple of hours? Like, How long does it take from the time that you start pouring your wash into the pot to when you shut down for the day? Oh, excellent question. And again, I keep records of this. I just always like to kind of keep track of when I started and when I finished. And I also, and this sounds really ridiculously nerdy of me, but I was just trying to learn in the early going, especially I kept track of what time the first distal had started coming out of the still. And then at what point and what time it was when I switched from heads to hearts and so on. That was actually really helpful with my still. And as I said, based on a limit of 15 liters of liquid in that still, it's really, really consistently just about two hours or or between two hours and two hours and 10 minutes to run a batch through that still. And an important point here too, which I'll just run over real briefly, is when I say it takes that long, I mean running the still at what I call a safe rate. It's a really important point that a lot of people just don't get. You can't simply turn the heat up on the still and make everything run faster. You actually end up wasting alcohol that way because if it's too hot, then some of the vapor that comes into the condenser is going to just disappear into the air before it's ever condensed. That's really dangerous because that vapor is very high in alcohol and creates an explosion hazard. And it's also just wasteful of alcohol. You just have alcohol just disappear in the air. And so what I did was I have a propane burner under my still and a propane tank next to it. And on the regulator on the, on the propane tank, I just, I found the kind of sweet spot with how high to have the flame there that ran the still at a safe rate without seeing any vapor disappearing, you know, out of my condenser. 
and I just marked that place on the regulator with a Sharpie. So I just turn the flame to that every time and every single time. It takes right about exactly an hour for right about at the one-hour mark is when the first distal up starts coming out of the still. And from there, it takes about another hour to an hour and 10 minutes to run through all of the heads and hearts and tails. So I should mention, too, that most kinds of liquor are distilled at least twice. I just described one, what's called a distillation run, and that's putting a liquid in the still and running it through one run like that. Yeah, most things are actually distilled twice, and so you have to account for that amount of time. So in general, I spend about two and a half hours total down in the still house. That's getting everything down to the still house and putting the liquid in the boiling pot, uh, getting everything all set up with the containers that I'm going to catch the distillate in, making sure my refractometer's you know, clean and ready to go, and getting my records for that batch started. And I usually just plan to spend the entire time down there. You don't want to have to leave your still for any length of time when it's running. I've done it enough at this point to be pretty comfortable with it if for some reason I need to bolt up to the house and use the bathroom or something like that. But normally I just plan to stay down there the entire time just because there is a possibility of a boil over or something bad happening. It's a really good idea to babysit it the whole time. And I just bring something down with me to do. I'll bring my writing pad because I I write all my drafts longhand the old-fashioned way with pen and paper. And I've got that. I've got my MP3 player or something. I've got something to do when I go down there, because I just know I'm going to be there for two or two and a half hours. That's been really consistent. And again, I just, I I know that from the records that I've done. And so the first hour, I don't pay too much attention to the still because I know it's going to be, it's going to be right about the one hour mark before anything starts coming out of the still. After that, I'm paying close attention. (laughs) And then when you do a second distillation, do you take that liter or so of alcohol that you've gotten from your first run add that back in with enough water to bring it up to 15 liters and then run it again that way? Oh, no, but that's a that's a really good question. Yeah, I should back up slightly. And so if you're doing two distillation runs, the first run is called a stripping run or sometimes it's called a beer stripping run. It actually, to my mind, it helps a lot with small-scale distilling because the first run, you're just kind of doing it fairly quickly and you're just concentrating down the alcohol. It's, you're not really working too hard to accurately separate all the things. You're just concentrating down the alcohol so you have a smaller amount of liquid to work with. And what you end up with after that first run is called the low wines. And actually, usually from that first distillation run with 15 liters of wash in there, assuming it's about 10% alcohol, which is about average, you know, I'll usually end up with about probably about five liters of low wines from that that are then about 25% alcohol. And then I put those low wines. Normally, what I will do is I will have, say I'm making a batch of Irish whiskey. I will usually have actually two or three different batches, that is two or three different fermentation buckets that I've been working with. I run all of those things through each of those batches through the still once and then combine all of those low wines so that I have about 15 liters. That's kind of the most efficient way to do it, but you can certainly run smaller quantities through there. I just I just think that running the larger quantities is a little more efficient. So say I have 15 liters that I've collected from a couple different batches of low wines, and I put those in the, the still to do the second run, which is called the spirit run. 
And that's the one where I'm going to be really watching carefully to separate the heads and hearts and tails. One of the things I get asked a lot is, is about just people want to just add a whole lot of actually white sugar to their fermentation bucket. And the, the idea is, first of all, people say, well, if in the mashing process, what we're trying to do is convert the starch to the sugar for a fermentation, wouldn't it just be easier to just put a bunch of sugar in the bucket instead of going through all that mashing thing? Well, if that was a good way to do it, the commercial distilleries, I promise, would be doing it. That is a really expensive way to make booze, for one thing. And for another thing, the distillers know that there are flavor components and just these intangibles in the grain that you just don't get from cane sugar. Otherwise, if it was cost-effective and it made good booze, they would do it. But the point that people are making really is, if I just add a bunch of sugar to my fermentation bucket, then I'll end up with a wash that's 25 or 30% alcohol. And so then I can put it in the still and only have to do one distillation run instead of two. That's what they're saying. And, you know, my point about that, and this is completely from my own experience, is I think it just makes it more difficult. You're having to really accurately separate things in one distillation run, and it's very difficult. On this scale, with this small of a quantity, it's very difficult to accurately make the distinction between the heads and hearts and tails. I did it once for purposes of being able to write about it in the book because I just I like to write and speak about things I've actually done. So I did try it just once because I get asked about it so frequently. And to my mind, it was stressful. It was wasteful and very expensive and turned out an inferior product. And so never done it again since then. <laughs> so yeah, that's kind of the, the gist of it. Generally, most things, there, there are certain things like Irish whiskey is traditionally distilled three times. A lot of, most vodkas are distilled three times and sometimes four. Every time you distill it, it gets a little more pure and because you're separating out more and more of the, the bad stuff. But most things that I, almost everything except for Irish whiskey and vodka, almost everything else I've ever done is distilled twice. And what you said there kind of answers the last question that I had and gives me a lot more insight into the distilling process because by using the grains or the molasses or the sugar cane for the different types of liquor that we have from blackstrap rum or dark rum to a lighter or silver rum to our vodkas to our whiskeys, that if the distilling process were being done at a very high industrial level, we might be extracting just the ethyl alcohol, the stuff that, you know, we like to drink to get a little intoxicated on. And in that case, then it really wouldn't necessarily matter what's coming through because we're just extracting that chemical. But when it comes to the distilling process for beverages, we're not just stripping out the ethyl alcohol. We're also getting the different esters and chemical compounds and things that come from the ingredients that go into it. And that's what leads to these different flavors, even though we might have a relatively neutral spirit, that these other things do give it flavors that we wouldn't have with just alcohol. Exactly. If you're distilling in order to make fuel ethanol, then it probably doesn't matter if you use sugar or or whatever else, because what you're aiming for is just a very high concentration of ethanol, and you're not planning to drink it, you're putting it in your tractor or something, so then it probably doesn't matter. But otherwise, yeah, definitely. 
yeah, I agree. And plus, again, the cost effectiveness of it. You know, I had somebody come up to me after the presentation in Texas in February, and this was not the first time this has happened. But this guy, he said, "Yeah, I just I, I like making the sugar shine." He called it. They called it sugar shine, and it's just it's just dumping a bunch of white sugar in a bucket, dissolving it in water, adding yeast to it, a whole lot of yeast. That's a really high alcohol tolerant type of yeast, and fermenting that, and then you distill it once, and then add some sort of flavoring to it like malt whiskey flavoring or something like that. And this guy was so enthusiastic about it. He thought he was really making really good tasting liquor and maybe he was. But gosh, what an expensive way to do it. You know, so, and so, you know, what I, what I always tell people is just, I, I kind of feel like with all the, with the time and effort and the investment and equipment and everything that you're putting into this, let's not make crappy booze. Let's make good booze. <laughs> I mean, really, you know, that just that, that just seems to kind of, after all of that, you know, why would you want to take a shortcut, you know, and come up with something that, you know, you might enjoy drinking, but you wouldn't necessarily want to give away to your friends. <laughs> That's just my opinion. I mean, to each his own and everything. But I just kind of feel like, you know, knowing what I know now about the amount of time that goes into this and and then you might be aging it or, you know, doing something else with it too. And that just adds more time to the process. I think it's, to me, it's so much more satisfying to just aim from the beginning to make the best, the, t- the highest quality product you possibly can. Even if you're not selling it or, you know, sharing it with anybody, I think it's just, to me, it's just so much more satisfying, you know. It's like making beer. If you're going to go to all that effort, you know, who wants to come up with something that tastes like Budweiser, you know. I don't don't mean to offend you if you're a Budweiser fan, but (laughs) that's just the first name that popped into my head. There's a beer out of Germany that a friend of mine got me drinking, Warsteiner, and it's on their label. And it's, you know, life is too short to drink cheap beer. I'd rather spend a little bit more for one good bottle and drink a little bit less of it than just to, you know, drink the stuff that's at the bottom of the shelf. Now, don't get me wrong. One of my favorite rums is a very inexpensive silver rum, but I'm not drinking it straight. It's not there for sipping. Um, You know, I'm making a mixed drink from it, but there are some gins that I've had that are uh, much more expensive than the regular kinds of things that I might make a gin and tonic with that are definitely like a sipping gin, but that's a different kind of experience that I'm looking for. Yeah, so it's, this has all been quite a process for me, and I just really enjoy the heck out of myself going around and talking about this. I get such good questions from the audience. I always learn something from them because quite often we'll get a question I don't don't actually know the answer to, and I don't like BSing people about anything. Um, you know, I'll just say I don't know if I don't know, and usually what happens is I'll ask the audience, I'll pull the audience and ask if anyone else knows the answer to that question. And then it gets this discussion going that's really cool. And everybody learns something and it's it's a lot of fun. And one of the next things on my list actually is to see if I can get in to talk to the two U.S. senators from our state who are both co-sponsors of Senate Bill 1562 and say, hey, you know, you're co-sponsors of this. How about let's see some action on it? because this has been nearly three years now that it's been just sitting there with nothing happening. And I'd sure like to, after all that effort that this guy in Texas went to, to hire lobbyists and get this thing in there in the first place, it'd sure be a shame to see it die in committee and not go anywhere. And I will certainly be making some phone calls to my state senators about this as well, because it's something I had looked into it a number of years ago when some of the craft distilling licenses were becoming available. And it was a similar kind of experience where it was all of these rules and regulations, it was even things like submitting my recipes and made it a very commercial process. And it was one of those, well, this is this is too much. 
it just didn't make sense for me to engage in then. So it was something that I haven't explored in, it's probably been four years. So I'm really thankful that we were able to sit down and talk about that legal process as well as the technical side of actually going from a fermented product to a distilled one. And I really appreciate that we've spent so much time together today. (laughs) I look at the time that we've spent together. Is there anything else that you'd like to add to the conversation for the listeners before we draw everything to a close? Well, one point that, you know, kind of ties in with the permaculture part of this. I wish I could take credit for this idea, but the big distilleries have actually been doing this for many years. And I get asked this a lot. What do you do with the grains that are left over from mashing? Because once you have mashed those grains, you've extracted however much fermentable sugar you can from those and you drain off the liquid, you then have this grain there and what do you do with that? And this to me is one of the really cool things about this whole process. It works just as well on a really small scale as a really big scale at the commercial distilleries. But the point is that in the mashing process, what you're doing there is you are extracting largely carbohydrate from that grain. And so what's left in the grain when you're done with that? Mostly protein and fiber. And guess what? That's a really good food for animals. And we raised free-range chickens, turkeys, and ducks. We had pigs for a few years, but we mostly raised chickens, turkeys, and ducks. And they love the stuff. It's really good for them, especially this time of year during breeding season and when egg production is highest. It's really good for them to get an extra bump of protein. Same thing in the fall when they're molting. You know, feathers are something like 85% protein. It's really great to give them extra protein when they're molting to help grow back those feathers. And it can be fed to cows and horses and, and sheep as well. And yeah, they especially love it when I'm making bourbon because then it's about 80% corn. <laughs> they really love that. But the big commercial distilleries have been doing this for many years. They generally dry out those grains first and then they, they let the local farmers know, hey, we've got this grain, come you know, bring your truck by. And sometimes they just give it away and sometimes they charge just a real nominal fee. But especially on the commercial level, that grain presents a huge disposal problem. And so they have to do something with it. What I think is pretty cool about that whole thing is that whether on a small scale or a big scale, you're getting two uses out of the same patch of grain. You know, you're getting that liquid out of there that you're distilling into a value added product. And then you have a really top quality, high protein food to give your animals. I've also heard of people making bread or making cookies or other baked things um, out of those grains. I haven't done that myself, but I know plenty of people who do. And There's a microbrewery about 20 miles away from where we live who is regularly begging local farmers there to take their mashed grains off their hands. We don't ever take them because we do everything organically and those grains aren't organic, but a lot of people do. And it helps everybody. It helps out that microbrewery. It solves a disposal problem for them and, you know, helps people save on their feed. So I think that's the only thing that I, I can think of that I hadn't already mentioned that I just think is a wonderful idea. And thank you for mentioning that. I have a friend who's a small-scale farmer who's raising his pigs largely on spent grains from a local brewery. And I didn't even think about that with everything else we talked about. And like, as I said earlier on, um, you know, this, it was such an important thing on homesteads for the settlers because it gave them, you know, I mean, basically everybody at the time, basically everybody wanted liquor. Not everybody had time to make it, so they would buy it from their neighbors, and everybody kind of won at that point because the people making and selling the liquor were able to generate some cash to pay their property taxes and keep their land, which was 
so important to them because then they would pass it on to their sons to carry on. And so it's just, that's one of the things that really got me with learning all this, all that I've learned about the history of all of this. And I've only gone back a couple hundred years. <laughs> and it really kind of brought it home to me, you know, how important uh, the homestead skill or, or even enterprise that really has been historically. And it's to me, it's just a shame that we've lost that. And then, and largely because the government just decided to come down with a heavy hand and say, we don't want you to do that. But there's just at this point, I, I believe there's there's no kind of valid reason anymore, you know, to say we don't want you to do this because we think like in Washington State where they said, you know, we think you're going to stop buying booze and we'll lose tax revenue. And that's just not the case at all. You know, I know quite a bit about the stilling at this point, but I simply don't have time to do it. You know, we don't drink a lot of liquor, but most of what we do drink, we buy. And so the, the arguments just don't really add up anymore. And so I think it's a really good time to, you know, to be having this conversation um, about all of the legal stuff. And we'll see where it goes. I look forward to seeing what the future holds for this as more people become interested, as they read your book and see what some of the hurdles are and gain an interest in taking perhaps their beer brewing and winemaking skills to the next level by distilling those into other products so that they can explore these flavors and other options that are available to them. And hopefully we can all work together to change these laws and deeply enjoy the craft of distilling. I agree. I think that's a real important point that we should be having fun doing this just like people do ever since ever since we've been able to openly make beer and wine. It's fun. You know, it's fun to do it. It's fun to share it. It's fun to talk about it and read about it. And we should be, be able to do the same thing with distilled liquor. And as we do that, we can enjoy the fun of drinking it with one another. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much, Victoria, for taking the time to sit with me and to have this extended conversation that allowed us to share not only the legality of craft distilling, but also the process and enjoyment of it. Well, thank you so much, Ray. I really appreciate the invitation, and I really enjoyed talking with you. And that was Victoria Redhead Miller. Find out more about her and her work at victoriaredheadmiller.com and her books from New Society Publishers at newsociety.com. If you'd like to hear one of Victoria's talks on distilling or making bread in person, attend one of the 2018 Mother Earth News Fairs. There are still several left in the year, including Oregon, Pennsylvania, and Kansas. If you're interested in making booze at home, after listening to our first episode on the legality of this practice, and if you decide it's worth the risk, I highly recommend her book, Craft Distilling, as you can learn all you need from Victoria's hands-on, experience-based approach. If you want to learn more about making beer, wine, or mead as the base for your at-home still runs, here are several books that I recommend from my days as a brewer, vintner, and mead maker. The first of those is Charlie Papazian's classic, the complete joy of home brewing. This will tell you just about everything, and I do mean everything, about making beer. There are also tons of copies of that available in the marketplace, so you should be able to pick up one used really inexpensively or find it in just about any library around. On the wine side, one of the favorites that got me started is the Foxfire Book of Winemaking. It's filled with memories and recipes for wines, juices, and punches based on the traditions of the region I call home, Appalachia. Finally, when it comes to making mead, though I like The Complete Mead Maker and several other books on this subject, my go-to is Jeremy Zimmerman's Make Mead Like a Viking, 
He'll have you wild fermenting honey in no time. And after a night of drinking with Jeremy before an event, I can say that a honey-based gin is a delightful thing. As you can see, there are all kinds of places you can take, making your own alcohol at home, whether you're brewing, venting, making mead, or deciding to fire up a still. All of them are ones that I highly recommend, and if you're interested in this, feel free to get in touch with me. I've made, I don't know how many hundreds of gallons of beer, wine, cider, and everything else under the sun, and I'm more than happy to point you to additional resources. At this point, I would like to offer an update on my comment about methanol and the damage it can cause to the optic nerve. The amount required to do so is 10 milliliters, or about 2 teaspoons, of pure methanol. To me, that's not that much. But looking into it further, the risk of creating and consuming methanol in that quantity from a single batch of alcohol is pretty unlikely. The issue increases, however, through multiple distillations as we combine and concentrate larger amounts of alcohol. So if you decide that distilling is right for you, play it safe, use an alcohol refractometer, and make sure that you're properly separating your heads, hearts, and tails. As mentioned in the opening for this episode, in partnership with Victoria and her publisher, we're giving away a copy of Craft Distilling and From No Need to Sourdough. If you're a Patreon supporter, you'll find a giveaway in your feed for Craft Distilling starting on Tuesday, July 10th and running through Thursday, July 19th. As always, leave a comment in that post to enter the drawing. If you're not a Patreon supporter, you can find out more about the giveaways and other rewards for signing up and supporting the show at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. For her book on bread, send an email to me at show at thepermaculturepodcast.com with the title Sourdough. That'll enter you into the giveaway, which I'll pick a winner for on Monday, July 30th. As I always like to close an episode and my ending notes, what did you think of this conversation? What did you learn that was new or interesting? Did you decide that craft distilling is something that you want to start doing in your home or on your homestead? Let me know. Leave a comment at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or you can get in touch with me directly. You can do that by sending me an email to the address mentioned a moment ago, give me a call at 717-827-6266, or drop a letter in the post. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. From here, at the moment, I'm not sure what interview will come out next, but you can expect that by July 20th or earlier. Until then, Spend each day learning the skills that helped create the world you want to live in, and take care of Earth, yourself, and each other.